0: Well, I've been away for uh, the past two Sundays, just in case you didn't notice, uh, and I'm very thankful for Pastor Brandon uh, and Pastor Ben, who both stepped in and did an excellent job of continuing us in this series on First John. Uh, I think one of the benefits here at Keystone is that we have multiple voices that are able to speak and preach, and so we can continue in the same book with the same message and yet get different voices on it, and so I'm thankful that they were able to step in in the past two weeks while we were away on vacation. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 John 2, 18 through 25 this morning, so you can open up there if you want to while we get started. There there are some things that stick out in my mind very clearly when I think about my grandpa and remember him. I I remember how hard he worked as a farmer for 60 or more years of his life. Uh, I remember seeing him on a tractor and, and knowing there is no other place that he would rather be than there right now. I remember the kind of mischievous smile and laugh he would have as he told a story or played a practical joke on someone. And I also remember how quickly he tended to give up on the Philadelphia Flyers when he was watching one of their games. He would often come to our house to watch the games because he didn't have cable, we did, and this was before the years of sharing your Comcast passwords. And so he would come and watch with us and there are two things that I remember about those nights. Uh, the first is that he almost always fell asleep at some point throughout the game and would start snoring, only to then wake up and completely deny that he was snoring in any way. And then the second is that without fail, if the Flyers would get down two goals, three goals, even if it was in the first period, he would get restless. And if there were down three goals, you would hear his recliner close him stand up and him say to some effect, uh, this game's over, I'm going home, I'm going to sleep. And I've realized that that trait has been passed down to me as well, that I'm quick to give up on sports games, that when I'm watching my favorite teams, if they get down multiple scores, I'm quick to say, this is over, get up off the couch, go away, and do something else. Sometimes it's easier to give up on your sports teams than it is to keep watching them. And I think that's a truth that we can find in all sorts of areas of our lives. That in many ways, in many areas, sometimes it's easier to give up than it is to keep going. That endurance is difficult. That, That going in the same direction in one area, year after year after year, is challenging. And that applies to our faith as well. And the life God calls us to live as Christians that what started with joy and excitement can easily, over time, become a challenge and maybe even become wearisome and tiresome and lead us to say, maybe I should just give up, give up. In the passage we're going to look at this morning, John is going to speak of people who have gotten up, left the church, abandoned their faith, and walked away. And he's going to encourage the Christians who remain, Keep going in your faith. Remain steadfast. Continue on in what you believe and know of Christ. Because our joy is dependent on us enduring to the end. That's the big idea for this morning. Our joy is dependent on us enduring to the end. That, That what matters is not just that we start well, but that we finish well, too, as Christians. And I want to be up front this morning and tell you that I believe the Bible teaches in a doctrine of eternal security or perseverance of the saints or or whatever we might call it, that those whom God predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. That those who truly are born again, saved, believe in Christ, will make it to the end because God will hold them to the end. And we're going to emphasize that side of things next week when we look at 1 John 2:20 20 and 26 through 29. And it's why I included next week's big idea in your notes already, which is just this, our enduring to the end is dependent on God's grace. Our joy is dependent on us enduring to the end and our enduring to the end is dependent on God's grace. I would say those are flip sides of the same coin in many ways. Yes, God will keep his children to the end and yes, God calls his children to persevere in the faith, keep going so that they might make it to the end. And I believe that part of why passages like 1 John 2, 18 through 25, and others are included. Encouragements and warnings for Christians are part of God's grace that's meant to keep us going day after day after day in our faith in Christ. And so, as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to focus on four things throughout it. We're going to see a sobering truth, a necessary warning, a hopeful command, and a joyful promise. That's where we're going. A sobering truth, a necessary warning, a hopeful command, and a joyful promise. And so let's pray and then read these words in 1 John 2. Father, we believe that your word is sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. That when we open up the Bible and read it or listen to it, that what we hear is your voice. And so we want to pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd speak to us this morning and that you graciously help us to keep going in our faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 John 2, starting in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth." The first thing we might see as we look at verses 18 and 19 is a sobering truth. And that's this. That not everyone who starts as a Christian endures to the end. Not everyone who starts as a Christian endures to the end. In these verses, in the whole passage, but especially in these verses, John uses some terms that that may be confusing for us or loaded for us. The first is this. He says, Children, it is the last hour the last hour. And we might say, well, wait a second. John wrote this passage over 1900 years ago, which means 16,500,000 hours have passed since this moment at least. So, John when you say it was the last hour, you you were wrong, right? It wasn't the last hour. when when John uses this term the last hour or when other New Testament authors use the term the last days or the end of the ages, they're talking about spiritual time. And what they're talking about is the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, saying that because we live in that time, we live in the last hour, the last days, where Christ could return at any moment, any moment. And so there's this added urgency and importance to us enduring in our faith because we live in the last hour. And then John says, well, here's how you know that you live in the last hour, because of the Antichrist. We hear that word, and I think that's such a loaded term for us sometimes that maybe our minds instantly jump to some central figure that we think is going to appear before the return of Christ. And we search Silicon Valley or our least favorite political party, trying to identify them. And while Scripture does talk about a central antichrist that's going to appear opposing Jesus and draw, try to draw Christians away from their faith, what John is focusing on here is he's saying there's actually many antichrists throughout history, many throughout history, and that he uses this term to speak of anyone who distorts or changes or denies the gospel. Someone who denies that Jesus is the Son of God come as a man to live for us, die for us, and be raised for us so that our sins can be forgiven. And John says anyone who would deny that truth, distort that truth, change that truth, they could be considered an anti-Christ by virtue of their opposition to Jesus. We might think, well, that, that's harsh, John. Why would you speak in that way? Because John wants us to know who's in the faith and who's not in the faith. Because as we see in verse 19, these Christians he's writing to have seen people who they thought were Christians, who were a part of the church, who by all appearance had a strong faith in Christ, get up, walk out, and abandon their faith. And this reality that happened 1,900 years ago still continues to happen today. Not everyone who starts as a Christian endures to the end. I would guess everyone sitting here today knows of someone in your life who at one point appeared to be a Christian, was part of the church, claimed to love Christ, claimed to have faith in Christ, served well, was passionate for Jesus, and then simply walked away from the faith and wants nothing to do with Jesus now. Whether family or friends or kids or well-known authors and pastors or whoever, that we probably all know of someone like that. And so I want to ask the question with this point, how should we respond when that happens? I mean, how, how should we think, feel, and live when people who we think are Christians, who we know and love, walk away from the faith? And I want to suggest four answers to that question under this first point. Here's the first one. That we shouldn't be surprised when people walk away from the faith. We shouldn't be surprised when people walk away from the faith. Although it may be a new experience in our lives when it happens, this is not a new development in Christian history. James, or John wrote to people who probably saw some of their loved ones, friends, as a part of this group, who now has got up and abandoned the faith. Judas walked with Jesus for three years, witnessing everything firsthand, only to turn and oppose him in the end. Paul had ministry partners, who he loved and who he worked faithfully alongside of, who eventually turned and walked away and opposed the gospel. This is not a new reality in Christian history, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. And part of why I say we shouldn't be surprised by it is because if we don't think this is a possibility, if we don't think someone could claim to be a Christian and actually appear to be a Christian, but then walk away from the faith, we will be shocked when it does happen, and it will be all the more likely to shake our own faith and perhaps lead us to walk away. Think of if if you have a garden in your backyard and you decide I'm going to plant a garden, I'm going to be a gardener, and you expect that there are going to be no weeds that grow up into that garden, I would guess you and I wouldn't be a gardener for very long because those weeds are going to pop up and you're going to say, what is this? And it's going to discourage you and say, what is going on? I didn't expect this to happen. And cause you to be all the more likely to say, I didn't know this was going to be a part of it. I'm not going to do this anymore. And the same could be true if we expect or are surprised that people might claim to be Christians, might look to be strong in their faith, only to one day turn and walk away and abandon it all. We shouldn't be caught off guard by that. But here's the second thing. We should be saddened when we see people walk away from the faith. I don't think I need to tell you that. You probably just feel that naturally. But I would just say that that's a good response. That that was Paul's response in Philippians 3.18 where he says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. I mean, picture that. Paul's crying as he's writing these words. Tears are staining the pages. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. I wonder if John is crying as he writes about these people who were in the church and yet have walked out of the church, some of whom he probably knew and loved personally. When I was youth pastor, that makes it sound like it was so long ago, it wasn't, but while I was youth pastor, uh, people would often ask me, if, if they found out I was a youth pastor, they'd ask two questions. What's your favorite part of being a youth pastor, and what's the most difficult part of being a youth pastor? And I found the favorite part would change from year to year. It didn't always remain the same. But the most difficult part was always the exact same answer. What's the most difficult part of being a youth pastor? Seeing a student who who appeared to love Christ, who was growing in their faith, who, who wanted to gain knowledge of who Christ is and how it should impact their life, eventually just one day kind of get up, walk away, and say, I'm done with it. Like that, that, that haunts me. That was hands down the most difficult thing. And, and I would guess for many of you that's true too. For the people that you know and love, family members, friends, kids, others, who you've seen turn away and say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. That, there is, that is a grief that in some ways is probably unlike any other. It should sadden us deeply when people simply get up, leave, walk out, and say, I'm done with this. But then here's the third thing, too. We should be strengthened when people walk away from the faith. That's maybe the oddest of these four answers. How should we respond? We should be strengthened. Why why should we be strengthened when we see people walk away from the faith? In these verses, John tells us this happens for a reason. as part of God's plan. It says that it might become plain that they are not of us. It might become plain that they are not of us, that they aren't truly saved. How how would that strengthen us? First of all, that it might increase our own resolve to endure in the faith and to know that, that we are in the faith. I mean, think about that. When someone we know, love, trust, walks away from the faith, and we keep going... Says, I wasn't in this because they were in it. This isn't a club I joined because my friends and family are in this. I'm in it because it's real. And I'm gonna keep going. I mean, think about it when, when someone like a popular pastor or author, someone we looked up to immensely, says, I- I'm done. I-, I don't believe this anymore. I- I'm walking away. And you keep going? It shows your faith was not rooted in that person, but is rooted in Christ. And that should be encouraging. That should strengthen your faith. I mean, just as someone walking away from the church makes it plain that they don't have faith in Christ, you staying and remaining makes it plain that you do. That should strengthen us and encourage us. And the other thing is that it should strengthen us in our resolve to see them come to faith in Christ when we see people walk away. Like when we see people abandon the faith, say, I'm done with this. Don't abandon them as a result. Double down on your efforts to see them come to Christ. Double down on your prayers that God might draw them to himself and give them faith to see Jesus and why he's so beautiful and precious and good. Let someone else's resolve to abandon the faith only serve to increase you and I's resolve to pray that God might give them faith, to point them to Christ as we have opportunity. My my own story is evidence that would say don't, don't give up hope if you have a child or someone else who has walked away from the faith. Because when I walked away in high school and said, I want nothing to do with this, I had parents and church members and friends and family who said, we're going to keep pursuing him and praying for him. We're going to double down on our prayers that God might do something to save, transform, bring Kyle back, whatever it is. Praise God for that. Don't give up hope if those close to you have walked away. Instead, let it increase your resolve to pray for them and to pursue them and lovingly point them to Christ. And then the fourth, how should we respond when we see people walk away from the faith? We should be sobered when people walk away from the faith. Don't, we shouldn't let a true doctrine of eternal security cause us to falsely believe that that could never possibly happen to us. When someone else walks away from their faith, abandons it, don't let that have us then lead to presumption in our faith, as if saying, that that would never happen to me. But let it have us lead to perseverance in the faith. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep going no matter what. Because part of why a passage like this is in the Bible, I would say, is to keep us going. It's God's grace to keep us going which is why I think John includes this next part, a necessary warning. Expect your faith to be challenged along the way. Expect your faith to be challenged along the way. We should expect there are going to be moments in this life where our faith gets challenged. John clarifies for us in verses 21 through 23 who he has in mind with the people who have left the church and who he calls antichrist. They're those who are now denying that Jesus is the Christ, denying that he's the Son of God, denying that he's the Messiah who is the only way to relationship with God. And John writes the Christians who remain saying, you know the truth. Don't believe the lies. You're going to hear these lies. You're going to have people tell you these lies. Don't believe them. You already know the truth. Keep going in the truth. Don't believe the lies that would challenge you to give up your faith and walk away. Along the road of endurance, our faith will be tested and challenged. There will always be lies that would try to get us to give up and walk away. You've likely heard of the word deconstruction because it's been used so many times over the past four or five years. And that word... I think can be a confusing term because it can be used in so many different ways, not all of them bad. Sometimes people might say, I'm deconstructing just as a way of talking about wrestling with their doubts about what they've been taught and what they believe. But it's, it's often come to mean someone who deconstructs their faith entirely, tears it down, denies what they said they would have believed at one time, and ultimately deconverts because I'm not a Christian anymore. And you probably heard famous examples of this. I mean, YouTubers, Rhett and Link, uh, Pastor Joshua Harris, Hillsong Singer, Marty Sampson, are just several of the examples of lots of more well-known people who have deconstructed, in the faith. And, and there are lots more others that aren't as well-known that you could find on social media or maybe even people that you know who've walked this path. And I, I want to be careful about giving this kind of like one-size-fits-all story with people who deconstruct and walk away. Because I think there are lots of reasons, and I think we should want to hear people, understand what caused them to walk away, not shame them. But it does seem like often there's kind of this story that goes with someone who deconstructs and walks away with the faith. That the story goes something like this. I once believed these things. I once believed these things but now I don't anymore. And as a result, I'm actually happier and have a better life now because I've walked away from this. And so we should ask, well, wait a second. We say that joy is found in Christ and knowing Christ. What do we do when we see people who say, I'm actually happier now that I've walked away from Christ? How, How do we make sense of that as Christians? And I think one of the ways that we kind of respond to it and make sense of it is this, that there will always be ways of life that are easier than following Jesus. There will always be ways of life that are easier than following Jesus. I I can't help but wonder if some of the reason why these people John's writing about denied that Christ is the Son of God, that he's the King, the Messiah, is because it made life maybe a little bit easier. That that maybe they could avoid some of the shame and persecution they were facing as first century Christians. That that now they could be free to kind of live as their own kings and say, I decide what's right and wrong and I don't have to submit to Christ and pursue holiness and becoming like him. Like there will always be ways of life that are easier than following Jesus. And we'll always feel that in the midst of this world. But Jesus doesn't call us to follow him because he makes life easier. That's why we find in Mark eight thirty-four. he's talking to his disciples, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Deny himself. Like there are lots of ways of life that are easier than deny myself and follow this guy and do what he says. Namely, I just do what I think is right. And that's just, I think part of what makes the Christian life so difficult sometimes is that it's just so daily. Daily, wake up, deny myself, follow Christ today by his grace. Wake up tomorrow, deny myself, follow him by his grace. Day after day after day. There's always ways of life that might be easier and us to give up. Every year in January, lots of people join a gym. Lots of people join a gym because it's New Year's resolution time and we've got visions of ourselves sitting on the beach somewhere with a six-pack and ripped arms and so we're like, I'm going to get to the gym. Do you know how many people who join in January are at the gym five months later? About 20%. About 20%. 80% aren't at the gym five months. Now, I'm not saying that because I'm giving you statistics for people who continue as a Christian. Don't take it that way. But why do people just stop going to the gym when they join so excitedly in January? Because along the way they find there are ways of life that are easier than going to the gym. Sleeping in, not having to stop there on the way home from work. Like life is a little bit easier not going to the gym every single day. And so I'm going to kind of give up on this and move on. We don't follow Jesus because he makes life easier for us. We follow Jesus because we believe it's worth it and there is no life better than knowing him and following him. That's that's why Jesus follows up those words we just read in Mark 8.34 with this then in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. Whoever really wants life, will give it up for my sake and for the Gospels and will find true life in me. The the call to persevere in the faith is not a call to live the easiest life possible, but to call a call to live the worthiest life possible, which is knowing Christ and following after him. And and then the second thing we we might see here is that there will always be truths in the Bible that are appealing to deny. There's a temptation for us to take this and to stand above it rather than to stand under it. To take the Bible and to stand above it and to say it must conform to me and what appeals to me, rather than to stand under it and say, I must conform to what God has said, even when it's not the most appealing thing to me because this is true and this is authoritative and the one who spoke this is a good father. And so I believe it. In John's time, people were taking what the apostles taught about Jesus and they were standing above it and saying, that doesn't appeal to us, so we're gonna deny that Jesus is the son of God come in the flesh in some way. And in our time, this temptation remains to deny some truths of the Bible because they don't appeal to us. It's tempting in our time to deny what scripture says about gender and sexuality. It's, it's tempting to deny what it says about Jesus is the only way. It's tempting to deny what it says about hell. It's tempting to deny what it says about all sorts of other way, things. That it's appealing to us to say, I, I don't believe that because I, I, I don't want to believe that. Does, that doesn't appeal to me. There will always be truths in Scripture that are difficult, that we grapple with, that we ask questions about. And please don't hear me say that persevering in the faith doesn't mean we don't have doubts and ask questions. It just means that we ask doubts and questions, and rather than using them to tear down Scripture, we wrestle with Scripture. And we ask, why does it say this? Why should we still believe that? Why is this the Word of God? And then we find, as we ask those questions and ask them together, admitting our doubts, asking our questions, wrestling with Scripture, that our faith actually ends up growing stronger rather than weaker. The call to persevere is not a call to just shove your doubts and questions away and just believe. It's a call to wrestle honestly with doubts and questions in light of Scripture. And so become stronger in faith in Christ. John follows this section up then with my favorite parts of this passage, a hopeful command and a joyful promise. And here's the the hopeful command. We should see God's word as a means to endure. God doesn't just call us to endure as Christians. He gives us aids or means of grace to be able to keep going. And one of the primary aids he gives us is his word that's why john says in verse 24 let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you if what you heard from the beginning abides in you then you too will abide in the son and in the father the the fuel that will enable us to endure day by day by day by day is this god's word what the apostles taught, and what we have contained in our scriptures. And we desperately need it if we want to keep going as Christians. Two weeks from now, the Tour de France will start. It's one of the most well-known endurance events in the world. And over 23 days, bikers will compete in 21 stages where they'll ride uh, 2,068 miles total. And they'll climb an elevation gain of a total of 48,530 meters. Which I know means nothing to us because we're Americans. And we're like, what is a meter? I have no idea. Uh, It's essentially like you biking up Mount Everest five and a half times. And they'll do it all in a matter of 23 days with only two days of rest. And we get to watch it all from the comfort of our couches with a bag of chips right next to our hands. Right? It's fantastic. These bikers are constantly taking in calories throughout those weeks. When they're on their bike, in every single hour, they're trying to take in four to 500 calories with gels, chews, energy bars, drinks, food, and more. Constantly taking in, taking in, taking in. Because they know if I don't take in enough, I won't endure to the end of this race. The Christian life can be compared to a race. Paul compares it to a race in Philippians 3 and also 1 Corinthians 9. And just as Tour de France riders need fuel to keep them going, so do we as Christians. And one of the primary fuels God gives us is his word, which is why John says, let it abide in you. Eat it, drink it, take it in, soak in it. Because if we want to keep going, we need it. That we take it in personally, reading it, memorizing it, meditating on it, knowing it. Not just because that's what Christians are supposed to do, but because we need it if we want to keep going to the end. And I love the phrase John uses, the word John uses that he so often uses. Let it abide in you. This idea of let it it dwell in you. Let it get inside you. Let it remain in you. Go back to it again and again for encouragement and comfort and guidance keep going to it get it in you so we take it in personally we also take in god's word corporately we don't just take it in alone but we help each other take it in this is why colossians 3:16 paul tells this tells us this let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Just as there are no one-man teams in the Tour de France, there are no Lone Ranger Christians who endure. We need each other. And when we gather on Sunday morning, part of what we're doing is telling each other, keep going. I mean, even when we're singing this morning and we sing, hallelujah, the lamb has overcome. We sing those words and I hear, keep going, Jesus won. We take in God's word together as we sing it, teach it, preach it, speak it to one another on Sunday and throughout the week. And then we take in God's word purposefully. Notice that the goal of having God's word abide in us, according to verse 24, is that we would continue to abide in the Son and the Father. That, that we don't read scripture so that we can walk away and say, good job, Kyle. God, aren't you pleased with me because I did this today? We read scripture, so we walk away and say, God, you are awesome. And I can't believe that you would give up your son to die for me. It amazes me day after day that I see this truth in scripture. And so we walk away joyfully, then able to endure for that day because we've heard the gospel yet again. George Mueller was a famous uh, pastor in 18th century England, or 19th century England, 1800s who's kind of well-known for building orphanages throughout England. And apart from not only just kind of the daily pressures he faced as a pastor and in running these orphanages, he lived till he was 92 years old. And he lost his first wife in the midst of those years, his second wife in the midst of those years. Two of his children were born stillborn. And then he also lost his son and daughter before he eventually passed away at 92. I read about someone like that. I'm like, man, what keeps you going? What keeps you going when you have that type of life and those type of challenges? And he gives us a window into what kept him going in one of his most famous quotes where he says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how the inner life might be nourished. Daily joy in Christ through taking in the scriptures is one of the main means that God keep, and it gives us to keep us going day after day. And then John follows that verse up with this joyful promise. And this is the promise that he, God, made to us, eternal life, to which we might say, keep your eyes fixed on the prize. God has promised to you and I in Christ a life of everlasting, eternal, unending joy with him, a prize that Jesus has secured for us, and a prize that makes it worth it for us to keep going. And that eternal life is not just in the future, but it's also the life that we get a taste of here and now as we have joy in knowing Christ. And so part of our hope for this life is that the longer we endure as Christians, the greater our joy might be in Christ. John Piper said this about his father, Bill Piper, who passed away in 2008. He says, even in his final years of dementia, even in his final years of dementia, he rejoiced. In the last month that he was able to keep a journal, he wrote these words. I'll soon be 86, but I feel strong and my health is good. God has been exceedingly gracious and I am most unworthy of his matchless grace and patience. The Lord is more precious to me the older I get. I don't know about you, but I want that. Like if I live till I'm 86, and my mind's giving out, and my body's giving out, and I've seen people pass away like he saw his wife pass away, I want that, that I can say, but Jesus is more precious to me. And I want to speak to you, if maybe you're here this morning and you're 86, or you're 90, or you're 80, or you're 70, and, and you know you're kind of entering maybe the last stretch, however many years that may be of your life here on this earth, And maybe you wonder, well, how does God want to continue to use me for however much time I have on this earth? And I I want to give one answer to that. Is for you to be able to live and witness to the truth that Jesus is worth it. To be able to tell my generation and other generations like mine, he's worth it. He's better now than he was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Look, we, we don't need to hear most often how bad the world's getting. We know that. We need to hear how good Jesus is and that he's worth it to keep pursuing after. And so I think God might want to use you to be able to tell generations younger than you, keep going, Christ is worth it. But, but we also know our hope is not ultimately in this life. And so Jesus holds out the promise for our endurance that the future, a future with him of unending, everlasting, eternal joy will be infinitely better, infinitely better. And that's a promise that's worth it for us to keep going. La- last week, uh, my family, well, my wife's family was in Outer Banks for the week, and, and I was reminded of just how much I love Outer Banks. I hadn't been there in in probably five years, and I was reminded, like, this is probably one of my favorite places to be at. It's one of the best places, I think, to be able to just get away, enjoy the beach. I've been to Outer Banks before. You know that it it takes about a seven to eight-hour drive to get there. And along the way, you're likely to hit traffic because you pass some cities and, and there's lots of other people who are headed to the beach. And so one of the places we hit traffic was at the Chesapeake Uh, Bay Bridge and Tunnel, and it added probably about 45 minutes to our drive, and I just want you to imagine with me for a a moment, if what if I'm sitting in that traffic, and I I start to say, we should just turn around and go back home, this is just too difficult, this traffic's just too annoying, let's just go back home, there's no traffic going the other way, or or if I said, you know what, there's a lake 10 minutes from here, why don't we just turn off the next exit, go to that lake, it's water, that's what we're going to see at the Outer Banks, let's just go there. It's just too difficult to get to the Outer Banks. I would hope that someone else who was in the car with me would have stopped and said, Kyle, keep going. It's worth it. Like, we're two hours away from the Outer Banks. Keep going. We've got a home at the Outer Banks waiting for us. Keep going. The traffic will give up. Keep going. It's worth it. And I think that's what God might want to say to us this morning. That, that for people here who the burdens of life are just weighing you down and you don't know, like, I don't know if I can keep going another day in the midst of this, that God might want to say, keep going, it's worth it. And God is faithful and will take care of you and his mercies are new every morning. That, that maybe there's people who, that feels like your faith is hanging by a thread. Doubts and questions just seem to overwhelm you. You think it, it's about to give way. That God might want to say, keep going, keep pursuing Christ, keep wrestling with your doubts and questions because knowing Jesus is worth it. Or that maybe the life that God has called you to, that you find yourself in, the job, the ministry, the marriage, the family, or whatever else it is, just feels so difficult and it just feels like it'd be easier to give up and move on. We might hear Paul's words when he says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Wherever you're at, keep going. The end is worth it, Christ is worth it, and he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, as we'll talk about next week. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. We ask you, give us grace to follow Jesus as our Savior who gave himself up for us, as our King who calls us to lay down our lives, deny ourselves, and follow him day after day after day. God, give us the grace we need to keep going. Pray this the Jesus.